Mark, as many of you know for a long time, I'm going to read a passage that Tony's sermon is based on this morning. This comes from chapter 14. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands in three days. We'll build another not made with human hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophecy. And the guards took him and beat him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. As you heard, we've been, uh, and those of you who've been coming for a while know, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, and we are rapidly coming to the conclusion. Jesus, we saw last week, last Sunday, had been arrested. And Mark, uh, one of the four Gospels that begin the New Testament, has followed Jesus' uh, ministry and life journey. He's shown us Jesus going to the north of Israel and recruiting disciples and training them, um, traveling with them, living with them, eating with them, sharing his life with them, and forming them into uh, the proto-church. The apostles are going to become the foundation of the Christian church. When they finally recognize who Jesus is, when Peter acknowledges that he is indeed the Messiah, Jesus turns and marches, directly down to Jerusalem. We've seen him enter Jerusalem and challenge and be challenged by the leaders there. While Jesus was in the north of Israel, he wasn't such a problem. But in the center of things, the center of Israel, at Jerusalem, the capital, at the temple, they had to deal with him. And uh, they discovered that the crowds, Jerusalem at this time is filled for Passover with crowds of people, people who had seen Jesus heal, seen people, people who had heard Jesus' teaching. They're afraid of him, and so they plot to kill him, and they pay Judas money to betray him. And last Sunday, we saw Jesus arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so this is where we pick it up here. Jesus, with his disciples, at night, this is uh, Passover night, with his disciples in the garden, is arrested and dragged away. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law came together. So this, they, this is the mob, the crowd of armed 
people that the Sanhedrin sent to arrest Jesus. They were afraid of the crowds. There were many pilgrims camping uh, on the Mount of Olives at that time. And so they sent a group of people with Judas to arrest Jesus secretly and bring him back. And this group, the high priest, the chief priest, the elders and teachers, together form the Sanhedrin, which is the name of the ruling council of Israel. So this is the high, highest authority, uh, apart from uh, Herod the king, this is the highest authority in um, Israel at that time. It's, one thing that struck me is, here is Jesus arrested and taken away from his disciples by this mob. And we hear this story of what happens to him. How is it we have this story? How do we know what happened to Jesus after he was arrested, after he was dragged away? Well, one of the striking things at the beginning of the Christian church was that the Christians took care of the poor and the hungry. They took care of people who were sick. And the book of Acts says that many priests became Christians because they saw the Christian church fulfilling the commandments of God. And so, I have not seen this written down anywhere, but almost certainly some of the priests who were at this meeting saw what happened, became Christians, and shared this story with the rest of the Christian church. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. So this is, Jesus, this is Peter who had promised Jesus he would never desert him. Everyone else has run away, and Peter stays true to his word. Remember, Peter was the one that tried to defend Jesus when he was arrested. And it's Peter who goes right in the, into the belly of the beast, so to speak. He goes right into the courtyard, staying as close as he can to his rabbi, to his teacher, to his Lord. And what's striking as you read this sequence of events, is the mark keeps cutting between Peter, the faithful, heroic man, and Jesus, and shows how ultimately only one remains true to the end. Only one maintains his witness even to death. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. What are they so upset about? Remember, this is the ruling elite in Jerusalem, at the temple, at the center of Israel, who are the chosen people of God, created by God to witness God to the world. Why would they be so resistant to Jesus. What is the problem with him? The problem is he's an outsider. We saw at the beginning of Jesus' ministry how he went to John the Baptist to be baptized. John the Baptist was down in the Jordan Valley by the, the banks of the River Jordan, living in the wilderness, completely separate from the temple, from the priesthood, from the ruling elite. He had no official credentials, and yet people flocked to him to be baptized. He was offering access to God freely by the banks of a river, and Jesus was one of those who went to John the Baptist 
to be baptized, completely independent of the priesthood, the temple, the sacrificial system, the temple tax, all the apparatus of control. We saw Jesus in the north of Israel, in Galilee, healing, feeding, teaching, all without official sanction, independent of the Pharisees, independent of the priests in northern Israel. They repeatedly come up to challenge him. He is an outsider, and they want to know, who gives you authority to do this? How dare you do this, separate from us? And then when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, to the center of official power, the same question is asked of him. Who gives you authority? Let me read you Mark 11. We went through this. The Sanhedrin go to Jesus in the temple courts at Jerusalem, and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why don't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John the Baptist was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. The issue is authority, is control. Who do you fear? Do you fear God or do you fear the opinion of people? And Jesus brings this free access to God independent of these professional priests, this professional institutional credentialing structure of education, of sacrifice, of tax. He is the ultimate outsider. He is not under the control of the priesthood, and that's what upsets them so much. You know, as I, um, I, was, I was preparing this, this sermon this week, I was reading uh, an amazing little story by uh, Dostoevsky in his book, the, Bar- the Brothers Karamazov. It's a very famous passage called The Chief Inquisitor. And in the story, Dostoevsky imagines Jesus returning in the time of the Spanish Inquisition. And the Grand Inquisitor has him arrested because he is freely healing people and taking care of them. And the Inquisitor examines Jesus and condemns him because he is offering freely what the priesthood demands so much. You should read it. I've read it five times now, and I'm still barely scratching the surface. But it's almost exactly this situation. A human authority assuming control and power over people, being outraged by the free access to God that Jesus brings, that John the Baptist brought. By the way, as I was reading that, I was thinking about myself. I'm a professional priest. Am I the problem? You should watch me, by the way. 
professional Christians are a problem in the church. They always have been. Because it's so easy to be seduced into thinking you are the position, you are the career, you are the salary, and you're not the child of God. You're not the one who has a relationship with God independent of all that. Anyway, you can judge whether or not I'm the Grand Inquisitor. I thought about that all week, by the way, on the retreat. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another one not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. You know, Jesus did say this to his disciples privately. So the only way they could have heard this would have been through Judas. And you can see how, to their ears, this was the ultimate threat, because the temple was the symbol of God's relationship with Israel, and the, the symbol and the center of institutional power in Jerusalem. And so from their eyes, the Sanhedrin's eyes, Jesus was this rebel, the threat to their authority, somebody who was talking about attacking the foundations of who they were. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave them no answer. Jesus remained silent. This is the climax of Jesus' revelation. And he is not going to mess around or waste time with petty allegations, false testimony. This is a moment of clarity and truth. And so he waits for the real question. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? This is the issue. This is the, this is the name that the crowd acknowledged when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is the long-prophesied one sent by God to redeem Israel. This is what the priesthood and Jerusalem were all about. And for an outsider to come with this claim, that is a central challenge. Now one issue here is that many Israelites had different ideas about the Messiah. Who is the Messiah? Many thought that the Messiah would be some kind of military leader or king. The Messiah would lead a rebellion, a military rebellion against Rome and the occupation and their oppression. That the, particularly the zealots thought the Messiah in terms of political power or military power. So notice how Jesus explains who he is. He uses scripture to define who he is. I am said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. I am. This is the personal name in Hebrew, Yahweh, that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush. So Jesus starts with the personal name of God. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. He's quoting from Daniel here. Daniel 7. Before me was one like a son of man. 
coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power over all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And that phrase, sitting at the right hand of the mighty one, he's quoting one of David's psalms, one of his messianic psalms. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So you see what Jesus has done here. Instead of arguing over definitions, he is using scripture to define who he is, to explain who he is. He's not showing up and arguing. He is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Bible as to who the Messiah was. The personal God, all power, all majesty, all glory, throne of heaven. He is not some uh, dictator or military leader or politician or king. This is his resume. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? It was blasphemous to claim to be God in, in that time. And there's only two possibilities for the Sanhedrin. This man is standing before them. He's either who he claims to be or he's blasphemous. And it just is not possible when they have so much institutional power and so much history that they could acknowledge an outsider. I thought about this too. If Jesus did return and he walked into that door, joined one of our services, Do you think you would recognize him? In the prophecies, it says that he was despised by men. He will be despised. He would not look beautiful. He would not be attractive. His human appearance is not what would make Jesus attractive to his people. He could sit amongst us, and we wouldn't recognize him. It's an incredible thought. And it's exactly what happened here. Remember, this is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's standing before human beings, and they do not recognize him. More than that, they claim to have authority and control and power over him. You ever see that uh, Jerry Seinfeld episode where it's bizarro Jerry, and the world is turned upside down, and everything is good, is bad, and... That's exactly what's happening here. Bizarro world. The creator of all things, with all authority and power, is here, apparently helpless, standing under the authority and power and control of human beings. By the way, Isaiah prophesies this. You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? That's exactly what they're doing here. And Jesus is letting them. That's the amazing thing. Why would he do that? 
Why would he allow himself to be put in this position, helpless, apparently, under the control of human beings? Because he's on a journey. Because he has a bigger goal. The world is upside down. And he had to go to the very bottom so that he could turn it the right way up. He had to take on all the insanity and the upside-downness of this broken world in order to redeem it. He had to put himself under human control so that he could reverse it and put the world under God's control. We prayed that, by the way, in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done, not my will, thy will, on heaven and on earth. That's why Jesus came, to reverse things to make things right. And they had a choice right there. Jesus stood before them. He acknowledged exactly who he was. He claims the authority of Scripture. And they could have acknowledged him. But they didn't. And I think, and this is, I think, the application of this passage Every one of us has to decide, is Jesus really who he says he is? On the men's retreat, we were looking at the book of Proverbs, and particularly that verse, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You cannot be wise in this world unless you acknowledge or know or believe that God is your foundation. It begins with that. Fear because God is this omnipotent, all-powerful, astonishing presence, creator of the world. Our lives are held in his hands. And they're not hands of flesh, the hands of spirit, because God is pure spirit. And those hands are big enough not just to hold us and our church, but this whole world, this whole universe. And when you think about that and you believe that, it's overwhelming. The only possible relationship of a creature to creator is this fearful awe at the tremendousness of the situation. And there he is, under the power of these people. What if Jesus is exactly who he claims to be here, the Messiah? Jesus Christ, second person in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the true and complete revelation of God's glory, the Lord of life, omnipotent, that means with all power, Omniscient, that means who knows everything. Omnipresent, that means present to every aspect of all of creation. Jesus Christ, creator of all things, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, sent by the Father, 
Because God so loved the world, he gave his only son. What if that is true? If that is true, then the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You cannot live in God's world if you don't start with the knowledge and the premise that you are God's creation. Wisdom is godly creatures living in God's world in a godly way. And that's what the Christian life is all about. And it starts with Jesus as God present in the world. If you don't have that fact, you're not going to live wisely in this world. You're going to be constantly at odds with this world. Because if this is the foundational truth, nothing else is going to make sense. You know, if you look at the word for sin, it's a term from archery. It means to miss your aim. So if you've got a bow and arrow and you're aiming at a target, you're not sinful. You are aiming for the target and you're true to the target. Your aim is true. Sin is missing the mark, missing the goal. Sin in life is not aiming for God. Sin in life is not basing your life on the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And letting other things take the aim of your life off the target, which is God. People, situations, other ways of living, other voices, anything that nudges you, takes your aim away from him, stops you on your journey towards God. Because wisdom is something that you... Let me wait for that one. That, by the way, is an example of a nudge that takes us off the aim. Don't let the world nudge your aim. You know, look at the table right now. It's beautiful, by the way. Thank you for the people who made it so beautiful. That's our aim. If you're wondering what we are aimed at at this church, we're aimed right here. Because that is the Lord's table. That is where we meet the Christ who goes to the cross. And anything that takes your aim off that is sinful, is unwise. It's not going to work. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And anything else is going to distract us from the purpose of our life and our journey towards our Lord. What has control or authority in your life? What do you base your life on? If it's anything other than the fact that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, then you, your life is not going to work out. The Christian life is learning to aim at God and in relationship with God being wise about negotiating the problems of this broken world. Keeping our eyes on what we're aiming for and having the wisdom to negotiate a fallen world. 
And your life, your journey, your pilgrimage, your discipleship will be measured by how true your aim is, the direction that you're going in. In a moment, we're going to go to this table, the Lord's table, the family table of the Christian church. And because it's the Lord's table, when we go to the table, we will come face to face with God. And you have to decide, what is your life based on? Is it based on what you've done in this life, or is it based on what Jesus did on the cross? Are you coming to this table because you're fearful of something else in the world, or that your fear of God, your awe at what Christ did on the cross, is the defining reality of your life? Don't just take the elements this morning. As you drink from the cup, as you eat the bread, what do you believe? Do you really believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord? That he is the foundation of your life? That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? You know, in, uh, in many Baptist churches, they have an altar call. We don't do that in Presbyterian churches. But this morning, think of this table as your altar call. It's a truth claim. Do you believe what it's saying? Is it the foundation of your faith? As we prepare to go to the table, let's pray. Lord, help us to base our life on your truth. Help us to live wisely in this world as we aim ourselves at you. Help us to encourage and support each other as we negotiate the problems of this broken world. Lord, protect us from fools who have other sources of meaning, from those who are contemptuous or sneer at you. Show us, Lord, the path. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.